So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week, um, starting in verse 32 of chapter 4 and then going into chapter 5, uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So I just want to start off with, by reading this passage. So Acts 4, verse 32 is where we'll start. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. I love that. God's grace was at work in all of the people. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was just distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Beautiful, right? But the story goes on. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Wow, okay. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How, can you conspire, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man carried, came in and, found, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Wow, okay. This is a story that kind of catches our attention sometimes. Have you ever seen something that just seems out of place? Have you ever experienced that before? I was driving, getting on the on-ramp to get on 205, just right here on exit 12, and I glanced over at the bike path, and just right off the bike path, there was this leather recliner sitting there. And I'm like, that's weird. That doesn't belong there. And it was, it was a nice recliner. I was actually tempted to kind of pull over, back up my, my SUV and go, we could, we could use that. It was a nice one, but it was sitting outside along the bike path, just along 205 there. And I thought, 
it just seems weird and out of place. And at first glance, I think the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it just seems, I think, a little bit out of place. Now, why? Because we've been reading through Acts, and the Spirit of God is, at, is on the move. Amazing things are happening. People are coming to know Christ. There's victory. There's great success. They've withstood persecution. They stood before the Sanhedrin. And instead of running, they increased in, in their confidence. They became more bold, and more people were saved in spite of the persecution. And then you have this story. There's defeat. There's sin. There's death. It just seems a little bit out of place. F.F. F. Bruce, a great historian and a great theologian, said the story of Ananias and Sapphira is to Acts what the story of Achan is in the, to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of God's people. If you don't remember the story of Achan, it's found in the book of Joshua. The people of God had entered the land. Things were going great. This is the high point of Israel's history, the promised land they're there. They cross the Jordan River on dry land. They march around the walls of Jericho, and the walls fall, and there's great celebration. And then they get ready to go battle this little tiny town of Ai. And so they go out, and they scout it out, and they go, and they come back, and they, they go, this town is so small. Let's just take a small army. Let's not, don't, you know, the rest of us just rest here. Let's just take a few thousand. We can, we can take care of business. This is a small town. So they go to battle the next day. Lo and behold, they suffer defeat. And 30-some people are killed. And they come back to the camp confused, going, what just happened here? What, why the defeat, Lord? Unbeknownst to them, and at the beginning of chapter 7 there in, in the book of Joshua, it talks about this man, Achan, who had taken some of the devoted things there in, in the city prior of Jericho, and without anybody knowing, had stolen some of the things that God said, do not touch. And so the sin of Achan affected the people of God. And there was defeat, and there was death as the result. So these stories are very similar. There's something going on here. There's defeat, and there's death here. If Satan can't destroy the church from without, and he can't, by the way, he will attempt to destroy the church from within, meaning through us, Christians, sin, sin in the camp, that sort of a thing. That's kind of what we see here. The persecution from the Sanhedrin isn't working, so Satan's tactics are going to change a little bit. He's going to attempt to get people inside the church to sin. So let's take a closer look at this story. I've kind of broken it down into two parts in your note taker. There's the part in chapter 4, the sharing of the saints. Everything is going great. I want to look at that briefly. But then there's the sins of the saints in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. So let's look at the sharing of the saints there at the end of chapter four. It says they were one in heart and mind. They had the same passions. They, had, they were on the same page. They were united. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what we're called to be as believers when we meet 
One heart and one mind. Unity. Love that. It's a beautiful thing. They were sharing everything, it says. They shared gracefully. They didn't claim possessions as their own. They possessed things, but things didn't possess them. Do you see the difference? They had property, but they were willing to give it up for the greater need of others. They understand stewardship versus ownership. They understood that in reality, God was the real owner. They were just managers. They were just to manage what God had given them, and so they were more than willing to give. They were graceful in their sharing. They were voluntarily sharing. It says from time to time they would sell something and give it at the apostles' feet. It wasn't all the time. It was occasionally. When the Spirit led them to do that, when they felt like, I want to be generous, when they saw a need, they would just do it. It was voluntary. It wasn't mandated. It wasn't commanded. It was voluntary, and it was sacrificial. They were giving from a substance level. You have to understand, when it talks about selling property and homes, this isn't a second home they were selling. This is their home they were selling. They were giving out of their savings, not out of their income or their excess. They weren't giving away a beach house because it was an extra, okay? They were sharing very sacrificially. And then it gives us a positive example of a person, an individual, Joseph, also known as Barnabas. And this is the first time in Acts that he's mentioned. He's going to become a very important figure. He's going to be mentioned 23 more times as we move through the story. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here with him. But he plays a key role in this book. Son of encouragement. In Semitic languages, oftentimes they would use this bar, son, as a reference to a character quality. So son, Barnabas, son of a prophet, that's what that literally means, son of an exhorter or son of encouragement. That's what it, it's kind of paraphrased to mean. And we're going to see a son of encouragement later on in this book. He's going to come alongside Paul. He's going to come alongside John Mark. He's going to come alongside the Christian church as a person of encouragement. But it says he sold a plot of land, gave all of the money to the apostles to distribute according to the need. So everything is going great, right? It's a beautiful example. We have Barnabas. But then it shifts gears in chapter 5, and we have the sins of the saints. Verse 1 and 2, we have spiritual pretense. Ananias and Sapphira do the same thing, it looks like, as Barnabas did. But yet, there's something very different going on here. They look the same on the outside, but the motives and the actions are very much different. And we're going to see that. So the negative example now is Ananias and Sapphira. It says they kept back part of the proceeds of what they had sold. And that word kept back literally means to steal, pilfer, or embezzle. How's that for being clear as to what's going on? That's what that word literally means. They were not so much misers as they were thieves. That's John Stott in his commentary. It's important to point out they were not required to give any of the proceeds of their land. They were not. It was totally a voluntary thing. They were not required to give all. Peter says a portion is fine. 
If you want to give 50% instead of 100%, that's fine. But what they were required is to be honest, to be upfront about what's really going on here, not to be deceitful about it. And that's the problem. You know, with our children, we talked about this when they were young. I remember talking to them about, you know, we would, there was punishment for doing something wrong, and that's one thing. But when they do something wrong, then they lie about it, right? As a parent, there's kind of that idea, and we would talk to them about that. Look, we all do things that are wrong. That's not necessarily the issue, although we'll deal with that. The bigger issue is when you do something wrong, then you cover it up and you lie. Then we're into bigger problems. And so there was kind of that extra, little bit of extra punishment in a sense that added on a little bit and a little bit more talking about it. And what we wanted them to understand was, look, be honest, be truthful. You don't have to be perfect in this house, okay? But we do want you to be honest. And I would say the same thing is going on here. The reality, the real issue is not greed. It's deceitfulness. It's deception that's going on. The real sin is not a lack of generosity, but putting on the perception of generosity, trying to look the part. They wanted credit for being generous without the cost. I think they saw what happened when Barnabas brought the money and all the praise that he got from people and the way that people kind of looked up to him and they said, you know, I li we like that. Let's do the same, but let's hold back some of the money. But boy, they love the people's praise. They weren't giving for God's honor but their own, not for others' needs, but for themselves. Barnabas was moved by God's grace and a compassion for others. Ananias and Sapphira were moved by something in addition to God's grace. That's why it's wrong. They were attempting to look better on the outside at the end of the day. We talked about this briefly in Sunday school this morning, the mask. I was gonna bring a mask this morning, I couldn't find it, and that's okay. <laughs> when we had this harvest carnival the other night and Patty and I dressed up as Mr. and Mrs. Incredible. How's that, from the Incredibles, the Disney? And so part of that is a mask and then we had t-shirts with the eye. And so by putting on the mask, do I become Mr. Incredible? No, not really. I'm Ken Drake with a mask on, pretending to be Mr. Incredible, which obviously I'm not. And that's what hypocrisy is really all about. That's what putting on a mask really is. It's pretending to be something we're really not. Now, there's different reasons why we put on masks. I really think there's a couple different reasons, maybe. One of them is fear. I really believe sometimes in an attempt to cover up what's really going on in our lives, we come with a mask. We put a mask on on Sunday mornings, the smile, I'm doing good, I have it all together. We really, to be honest, there's a little fear there. I don't want people to see the real situation here. That's very human. That's very human. Doesn't make it right, but it's very human to do that. And there's times to be, I'll be honest with you, I mean, I come, just like the rest of you, I'm a person, I come on Sundays, and maybe everything isn't going great. I've had a rough day, I'm tired. I'm in a state of depression. Who knows, right? But the mask goes on. There's that fear. Maybe the fear is, 
if I really let you know what's going on in my heart, then you will love me less. And I think we play that game with God. If I really let God, now this is silly, if you think about it, what we're really saying, but if I let God see what's going on in my life, maybe God will love me less. And I want us all to, sit, to get beyond that, please. Because by covering it up, I'm missing out on God's grace. I'm missing out on God's grace through another individual. By covering it, I'm not giving you permission now to be a part of my life. But taking off the mask and being real with people, I'm giving you permission to come alongside me. I'm opening up myself to God's grace. But there's a real fear element that keeps us and helps, makes us put on masks. But I think the other one is just simply pride. We put on the mask because we want to look a certain way. We want people to think a certain thing about us. It's, it's image management. That's all it is. And it's wrong. It's very prideful. It's self-righteousness as opposed to the righteousness that comes through on the basis of Christ's death for us. It's pride as opposed to grace. It's minimizing God's grace. It's all those things. John Calvin, uh, in his commentary, says there's, he calls these the evils that are packed under what they did. And he lists out six different sins in these two verses. Here they are. They show a contempt of God by lying. They show sacrilegious defrauding. They have perverse vanity and an ambition. They have a lack of faith. It's corruption of the church. Wow. And there's hypocrisy. Wow. There's a lot going on here. So when they come and they say, this is all of it, but it's really not, there's a lot going on there. There's a mask that they're trying to cover up. There's the pretense. But Peter, in verses 3 and 4, comes into their life with spiritual perception. He says to Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart and you've lied to the Holy Spirit? Wow. The Holy Spirit had given Peter some inside information. Peter knew exactly what was going on here because God had given him that spiritual perception. The Spirit reveals truth. Satan is a deceiver. That's the way it works. That's the way it, it always works. Satan has filled your heart, Ananias. That is a strong statement. It's really the opposite of being filled with the Spirit, which we've been seeing all the way through in the book of Acts, isn't it? They were filled with the Spirit, and they obeyed God. They were filled with the Spirit, and they were generous. But now it's you're being, your heart is being filled by Satan. What? It's important to point out, and Peter would have understood this, because Jesus had said to him the night before he betrayed Jesus, he said, I'm going to pray for you, Peter, because Satan wants to sift your heart like wheat. Wow. Satan wants to impact you very powerfully, Peter, by denying me. What's going on? Well, what we have here is this idea that Satan can influence us as believers. He can't possess us. He doesn't own us. We're owned by the Holy Spirit. But we can be influenced and we can allow ourselves to be put in that situation to be influenced by him. 
but we are still responsible for our actions. It's not an excuse. Satan made me do it. That doesn't work, okay? Now, there's a verse, Ephesians 4, 25 to 27. Here's what it says. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. Ananias and Sapphira had lied. They were speaking deceitfully, untruthfully. They were all members of one body here. In your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry, okay? Anger's an emotion. Deal with it in a godly way. And then verse 27, look what it says. Do not give the devil a foothold in your life. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't allow him an opportunity to influence you in a negative way by doing the things that were just mentioned. Deceitfulness, anger that's out of control. But you're giving the devil opportunity. There's a foothold there. Beware. And that's what it's saying to us. He says, you're not lying to man, but you're lying to God. Now, just kind of on a lighter note, I came across this list of our most common lies, and I wanted to put those up there. Just These are ones that we use, and that is a... <laughs> I just copied and pasted it, and that is purple. Um, but here's what... These are kind of humorous to think about, these are, but these are the co most common lies. I won't laugh, I promise. How's that? Your table will be ready in a few minutes. Heard that one before? I'm just kidding. Really? I never got your text. Okay. I have read and agreed to the terms and conditions, etc. Yeah, you have. You will need to know this later in life as a teacher. Oh, really? I'm fine. No, I'm okay. I'm just tired. Okay. Just one more episode. I'm on my way. Sorry, my parents said no. Ooh, those are good, aren't they? The most common lies. We're good at this, aren't we? It's kind of, it's a little bit in our DNA as a fallen human to do this. And I catch myself sometimes kind of just fudging a little bit on the truth. But Peter says, Ananias, you're lying to God here not just to man. Lying dishonors God. Lying affects a community. What's really going on is you're lying and dishonoring God, but you're also lying against koinonia. You're lying against the fellowship of the brothers and sisters in the community. God knows when we're lying. God knows even when we're lying to ourselves. You know, sometimes we think we have closets in our life that we can hide and kind of keep walled off to other people, that's just to us and to other people. That's not to God. God sees it all. Everything is laid open and bare before Him, it says in Scripture. We know that. It's important to point out in verse 3 and verse 5, it talks about lying to the Holy Spirit in verse 3, lying to God in verse 5. A couple important points about the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a force not just this nebulous thing out there, but you can lie to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has a personality in the sense of mind, will, emotion. 
So the Holy Spirit is a person, has a personality, and the Holy Spirit is God. We're talking about deity here. Verse 3, you're lying to the Holy Spirit, Ananias. Verse 5, you're lying to God. Same. The Holy Spirit is God. So this lying, this, it's not working here, Ananias. There's spiritual pretense, spiritual perception, calling it what it is, and then there's a swift punishment, verse 5. It says he just, he fell down and he died. Wow. I'm trying to imagine what this would have been like, and, and not knowing exactly where he was at the time, but maybe there was a worship service about ready to get started here. Imagine the commotion this would have caused. Imagine. Verse 5 says, great fear fell among all of them. And you can imagine why. You can understand why. But it didn't stop with Ananias. Unfortunately, Sapphira was a part of it. She was a partner in crime with him. Ananias had no chance to repent. Sapphira did, interestingly enough. Was it an act by Ananias only, or was it a deliberate plan between them both? And so when he dies and is carried out, a few hours later, three hours later, she comes in, and Peter asks her the same question. And he wanted to determine, would she go no and repent, or would she just play along with the plan? And she plays along with the plan, unfortunately. I'm thinking, as I was reading this, and I have these weird thoughts sometimes, don't you think she would have been a little suspicious as to why he's asking that question? Think about it a little bit. Maybe she should have been clued a little bit in as to something's going on here. Why is he asking me if this is all or not? I don't know. But she doesn't get it. She misses it. She says it is. She lies. And the same thing happens to her that happened to her husband. Verse 9, it says, how could you conspire? There's that word conspire. You and your husband were together on this. It was two. How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Testing the spirit, testing God. What does that mean? It means defying God and daring him to act. Go ahead, God. I'm going to step over the line here. I dare you to act. Testing God to see how much they can get away with. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe I can go this far and, and get away with it. You ever see your child do that? Sometimes you put the boundary up and you see them literally go right up to the boundary and stand there and they're playing, right? Have you seen that? This is kind of what's going on. They're testing God. They were testing his patience and his judgment to the limit. Deuteronomy 6.16 in the Old Testament, Moses said to the people, he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Now, at Massah, they had come to a place in the desert where there was no water, and so they started to gripe and complain to God, and they started to question his love and his compassion and his care and his ability to, to do something for them in that situation. And that was putting God to the test. Jesus used that verse in Deuteronomy 6 and the one later on in Deuteronomy 8 when Satan was tempting him. 
He said to Satan, quoting Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test here. Don't test God and say, Are you really, do you really care about me? Will you really act again like you did in the past now? And doubting that and putting God to the test. It's, it's just, don't do that. It doesn't work. So we have two people who have died because they lied. My question is, and maybe in your heart, in your mind, as you read this passage, you go, doesn't that seem a little bit extreme? Why so much wrath? Couldn't God have said, stop doing that? Warning number one, okay, next time. Or couldn't they have excommunicated them from the church? You know, you're no longer part of this church, goodbye. Wouldn't that have been enough to make a point? Why God's wrath? Because, and some people say, isn't this the God of the New Testament now? We're in the book of Acts. This isn't the Old Testament anymore. It comes across maybe even today in our culture a little bit strong, a little bit harsh. Um, all of these things, a little bit chilling, a little bit primitive even maybe. And I think sometimes we struggle with God's wrath, to be honest with you. I think we don't understand wrath. Number one, I wanted to point out a couple things. Number one is there is such a thing as sin unto death. There is such a thing as pushing God too far. There's a verse in 1 John 5, verse 16 and 17. It says this, If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. So John is differentiating between there are sins that we do that are forgiven. There are sins that can lead to death, that we can push too far, and that God maybe, even as believers, take our lives. So not specific on what that is, but it's there. But the other point I wanted to make is that God's wrath is not in spite of love, but because of love. In our culture today, we think of God's wrath as opposite of love. How can a loving God dot, dot, dot? And we use that in reference to a lot of things, hell and things like that, eternal punishment. How can a loving God dot, dot, dot? And I don't think they're opposed to each other. In fact, a loving God is a wrathful God. I came across this quote. It's by a lady, Becky Pippert. I don't know if you're familiar with her writing. She's a speaker and an author. But I came across this quote and I said, there it is. She summarized it beautifully and here it is. Think how we feel when we see someone else we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? You see your wife, you see your child being abused by someone else. How do you respond? Benignly? Of course not. Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. 
but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves and with his whole being. This isn't God with a cranky explosion. This is a, I love that, the settled opposition to the cancer that's eating us alive, the sin. God hates sin. He has a settled disposition. He always will because it goes against his very nature because it's eating up people he loves greatly. He doesn't just sit back and go, oh, well, no big deal. He reaches out and he deals with it. It's just who he is. And I love that quote. Think of it in that sense. If I saw someone abusing my wife or my kids, I would step in. I wouldn't just step back and go, well, you know, that's life, blah, 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 blah. No. I would be moved. And that person would experience my wrath at that time. Because I love my kids, I love my wife, and I'm going to protect them. And that's the God that we have. God was doing radical surgery on the cancer of sin in the body of Christ at this moment. Wow. It's pretty powerful stuff. Now, we do live in an age of grace. We do live in an age where the wrath of God came down on His Son for us all. And I am so thankful for that. And I am very aware of that. But I also know that God hates sin greatly. And sometimes I think in the age of grace, we're a little bit negligent on that side. And we just kind of let sin go. And this is a reminder for all of us, I think, to take it seriously because God does. There's spiritual pretense, spiritual perception by, by Peter. There's swift punishment but their solemn purging, verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Growth is often preceded by a work of God in dealing with personal sin. You know, I look back on my life and I really believe that in the times where I've grown maybe the most, it has been times where I have been confronted with an issue of sin in my life. And God has done some purging of my sin that has then freed me up to grow and to really realign me into, back into that relationship with God. And that is what's going on here. This is a great fear, this fear of God. It's not being afraid of God or seeing Him as unapproachable tyrant, but it's a healthy fear. It's an awe and a reverence type of a fear. In Hebrews 12, verse 28 and 29, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, how? With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Fear is an integral part of worship. I need to see God for who He really is. And I need to see me for who I really am in relationship to Him. And when that happens, that's when worship happens. Our God is a consuming fire. Wow. I need to take Him seriously here. That's important. So fear and worship 
go together beautifully. This kind of fear helps us cling even more tightly to the amazing grace shown us in Jesus Christ. We sang it earlier in the hymn by John Newton. He says, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear." Grace taught me to fear? Hmm? Yes, it did. Because I came face to face with God with an awe and reverence for Him. But then it says, and grace my fears relieved. Whoa. Because of the death of His Son on the cross, because of Christ, my fears can be relieved. That's powerful. Taught my heart to fear God, but yet His grace has also relieved my fears in a very powerful way. This kind of fear can alert us to the danger of sin and cause us to avoid it. You know, there's that passage in Scripture that talks about sin crouching at the door. I think sometimes we live life kind of uh, la-di-da-da, when in reality, sin, we need to be aware of that. It's a reality. Satan is like a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, right? Seeking whom he may devour. We have a real enemy. Sin is crouching at our door. We need to take it seriously. It's okay to have a little fear there. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear trembling. That's an important part of living this life. Now, it mentions the church. This great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the first time this word is used, church. Ekklesia is the Greek word there. This means, that word literally means a gathering or community of called out ones. Those who are called out by God, who gather together. That's what we are. This is the church. That's why this story, I think, happens right at the beginning of the church. Something new is starting. God wants to ensure that it starts out right. That sin doesn't just become commonplace here. God is making a statement right at the beginning. G. Campbell Morgan says this, what Ananias and Sapphira did also must be seen in the context of its time. This was a critical juncture for the early church and such impurity, sin, scandal, and satanic infiltration could have corrupted the entire church at its root. The church has never been harmed or hindered by persecution from without. Bring it on. When the church has been persecuted from without, it's grown, it's flourished, it's gotten stronger. The church has never been harmed or hindered by persecution from without. It has been perpetually harmed and hindered by perils from within. What's that saying? You and me, sin, letting things happen that shouldn't be happening, that's what harms the church. Not persecution out there. Bring it on. We get stronger with that. But man, when we allow sin to happen, it's a mess. It takes away our unity, destroys our worship of God and our fear of who He is and His holiness. We just disregard the grace of God and Him altogether. Just some questions in conclusion. Do we take sin seriously, individually and as a church here at Clackamas Bible? Sin is a deadly, serious matter to God. 
Ananias and Sapphira shows us that. The cross of Jesus Christ shows us that, doesn't it? It's serious enough that he sent his son to die. It's a deadly matter, deadly serious to him. He died for us. He took our sin. Have you experienced victory over sin through the offering of Christ on your behalf? Have you come to terms with your sin and your need for salvation? There's only one way to God. It's through Him and His, His death for us. As a believer now, those of us that have believed, are we allowing sin to hinder our growth in our relationship with God? Maybe we need some purging in our life. Are we putting on a mask of self-righteousness? By doing good things on the outside while covering up what's really going on in my heart. Are we attempting image management in my life or am I being real with who I am with God and with others? That's what we need to do when we come together. Now, granted, on any given Sunday morning, I'm not going to be 100% real with you in this context because it's going to be a little awkward maybe if I am. But I'm talking about in relationship, cup of coffee, maybe in a smaller group where I have that opportunity to be, really do this. But boy, we need that opportunity. And that's the kind of life we need to live. Just a closing thought before communion. You know, last Sunday, John Tabal talked about what's in a name. Names are important. I wanted to point this out. I thought this was interesting. The word Ananias literally means God is gracious. Really? <laughs> he was the guy that got carried out because he died? God is gracious. Isn't that beautiful? And Sapphira means beautiful, like the sapphire. God is gracious. God is beautiful. God is gracious in our life, and he's beautiful in dealing with our sins in sending his son to die for us so that we can have the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's why we're coming to the table today to remember that and to celebrate God's grace and God's beauty today.